Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. I'm your host, Cameron Nagel, and today's episode is with Chuck Sirak, CEO and founder of the world's leading retailer in music distribution, Sweetwater Sound. At the age of five, Chuck sold potholders, which he transformed this entrepreneurship mindset to create Sweetwater, the music empire it is today. Hello, and thank you for joining the Starting Small podcast. I'm here with Chuck Sirak, CEO and founder of Sweetwater. Thanks for doing this with me, Chuck. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Cameron. Yeah. Um, I want to start out talking about the development of Sweetwater starting from your childhood. You were born in Ohio and then resided to Fort Wayne. Is that correct with your family? That's correct. Well, you've done your homework. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in southern Ohio, and uh, at age five, I had my first business of making potholders, where you put the little loops in a frame, and then you go around the outside, and I sold those potholders at 15 cents a piece, two for a quarter, back in the early 60s. It was a long time ago, and, and that was my first entrepreneurial start. That's amazing. So that was five years old, you said? Yes. Um, how did you come about that? Was your parents an inspiration towards that? Well, my dad is a chemical engineer, was a chemical engineer. He's gone now, but he also had many, many other side jobs through the years. So I'm sure I was inspired by him, but I just have always been uh, innovative and uh, had that entrepreneurial spirit back before we could even spell the word entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, just, I, I like doing things and doing them well, doing to extremes. That's amazing. I saw that you were in Boy Scouts and then was there Cub Scouts leading up to the Boy Scouts? Yep. What age was that about? Well, you can become a Cub Scout at age eight. And around 11 or so, you get to become a Boy Scout. And I consider scouting is the thing that really set me up for life. Uh, you learn the scout law. And the scout law says that a Boy Scout will be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, clean, brave, and reverent. Amazing principles to live by personally. And they've been the principles that I've lived by professionally my whole life. And if you think about, you know, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, I won't repeat them all. Yeah. You can Google them and find them. Um, just great principles to live by. For sure. Um, were you able to complete the Eagle Scout then at the end? Oh, I consider that one of my two failures in life. Oh, no. Yeah, and, and if you were here at Sweetwater, you would see my, my uh, Boy Scout uniform hanging out on the VW bus. And I had every required merit badge. I'd done everything you needed to do to get your Eagle Scout award. And I had one thing to do, the Eagle Project, which meant like picking oh. up trash along the road or yeah. uh, build a park bench, something like that. Well, about age 14, I met my first girlfriend. Oh, yeah. And that ruined my scouting career. Oh, wow, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> So that was around 14. And then when did you start the saxophone? You got into instruments and sure. that passion kind of spread. Well, I was still in Southern Ohio at that point in okay. fifth grade. And back then it was pretty common for most kids to play a music instrument. And yeah. uh, I wanted to play trombone actually. And, and my dad, who was an accordion player, maybe a frustrated accordion player, he said, you don't want to play a trombone. They never get any solos. Well, yeah. In fifth grade, I had no idea what a solo was. He says, you want to play a saxophone. I said, okay, so we went to a pawn shop in Columbus, Ohio, and he bought me my first saxophone going into fifth grade, and I'll never forget, bought it on a Saturday, and first thing Monday, I run into the band director at my little school, and I said, guess what? I got a saxophone, and I can play it, and I made the most awful, hideous sort of duck wailing kind of sound on a saxophone, as you can imagine, and the music teacher looked at me and says, you have the mouthpiece on upside down. Oh, no. Yeah, that, that was the beginning uh, of my saxophone. But I've been playing it for a long time now. Gotcha. Was that private lessons? or? What was you know, that? I never took a lesson on a saxophone. Oh, okay. I'm really, uh, I've never taken lessons hardly on anything. Uh, there's wow. two things in my life I've taken lessons on. One is learning to golf 
and uh, I yeah. didn't start that to my late 40s, and I'm still not a very good golfer, so I'm not sure the lessons worked. <laughs> and then I also, at age 50, learned to fly helicopters. Wow. And to fly yeah. a helicopter, the FAA requires you to take lessons. And yeah. I did take lessons, but I actually crashed a helicopter once, so I'm not even sure those lessons worked. Oh, yeah. wow. Wait, how did that turn out? turned out great. Everybody okay. walked away, no, oh, wow. no scratches or anything. Okay. I didn't really crash it. I, I put it down in some bad weather, and the helicopter happened to roll on its side. We all climbed out, and everything was fine. But wow. those are the only two things I've ever taken lessons in. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so you went to high school. Where was that at? Was that in Fort Wayne? Yes. So in seventh grade, my mom and dad moved to Fort Wayne. My mom had been from Fort Wayne. That's where she grew up. And so my dad wanted to get us closer to grandparents and that sort of thing. And so I went to junior high here in, in Fort Wayne and then uh, high school also in Fort Wayne. Okay. Yeah. Um, the entrepreneurial side of things, did that continue? You said at age five, you were doing the pots. Was that continuing on through this, or did you start other businesses up until this? I did. I started many other businesses uh, after, after doing the potholders and selling as many as I could to every person in my little town of Southern Ohio. Uh, one year, I got a paper route. Most of my friends had 40 or 50 papers they delivered. It's a pretty common paper route size. I figured out if you delivered to the apartment complexes and to senior citizens, you could deliver a lot more papers. And so I was delivering yeah. 330 papers, you know, big, big paper route. And uh, we moved to Fort Wayne and uh, uh, had a business where it used to be a lawnmower comp- manufacturer called Toro. I think they're still in business, actually. But Toro would finance lawnmowers to teenagers. And so I ended up getting several lawnmowers, and I had friends working for me that would mow grass, and I would make a little commission on every one of them that mowed. And yeah. I had a lot of different businesses. I used to go to the bicycle auctions in Fort Wayne and buy all the auctioned bikes, and then I'd come back and put three together to make one good bike and that sort of thing. I would do that yeah. every year, twice a year. So That's amazing. Uh, towards me personally, that entrepreneurship at that age, I feel like that's hard to get into because there's many other side effects like peer pressures and stuff like sure. that. Did you find it easy to branch out? Did anyone judge you at your age? Did you try to get drawn into sports or... You know, I never was that much into sports. I played Little League Baseball, and when I got to ninth grade, uh, I had to make a choice of doing music or doing sports, and I was already deep into music, and so I did that pretty hard. You know, from the entrepreneurship side, I I don't know. Again, we didn't use that word back then. That's a popular word today. But I was encouraged by parents and grandparents, and I suppose some people thought it was kind of cute, but I've just always been industrious. And again, even if you look at my Boy Scout uniform, although I didn't get the Eagle Scout Award, I've got virtually every merit badge you could get. I mean, they're falling That's, off the, the, the sash and into my pants. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. That shows all the character right yep. there. Yep. Um, I want to get into the Volkswagen part. Sure. So around what age was that? Was that your first car? How was that purchased? It was my first car. And okay. It was one of the very, very few things my mom and dad gave me. My mom had wrecked the VW bus, <laughs> put a big V down the middle of it, hit a telephone pole. Oh. And so I filled it with two gallons of Bondo. And uh, I put some headlights on it that I bought at Tractor Supply. They looked a little bit like bug eyes. And then I spray painted that bus with 99 cent cans of blue spray paint that I bought at Kmart. Wow. And that's what I drove to high school my junior and senior year. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, the equipment side of things. Were you um, recording stuff outside of the bus previously and offering sp- uh, people to come to you, or did you put the equipment in there and just offer the recording side? Well, when I was in high school, we had a tape recorder that did what was called sound on sound. So you could record on it, back it up, and play it again and record additional parts. Okay. And so I got 
pretty deep into the technology. We were also fortunate at my high school, we had a synthesizer. And so I really got into that part of it and learning how to make sounds and so on and so forth. But right after high school, I went on the road as a musician in that VW bus playing saxophone and keyboards. Went all over the country, played uh, almost every state in the United States. But back in the, in the late 70s, there weren't a lot of recording studios because the equipment was just really, really expensive. Yeah. But where you did most of your recordings, believe it or not, were at radio stations. Yeah. And so as being on the road, it was very common. We'd go in on Monday morning and record a commercial announcing the restaurant or the club or the bar, wherever we were playing that week. And, and sometimes we'd have access to the equipment. And I was always the guy in the band that was pretty technical. And so yeah. I kind of ran that equipment. I made a lot of the equipment that we used in the band. Uh, I made amplifiers. I put speaker boxes together. I made my own snakes and all those sorts of things. So I was always pretty industrious there. Yeah. And after doing that for about five years on the road and not making a lot of money, I came home with that VW bus and some of the equipment that I acquired. And uh, I don't know how it really started. I don't remember. But uh, I got to a point where I realized I could start a mobile recording setup. And I would pull that bus alongside the school, the church, the nightclub, run 200 feet of microphone cables in, mic up the band and the choir, the, the preacher, the speaker. One time it was the president of General Motors. And wow. uh, I'd sit in my bus with headphones. And by then I had moved to a four-track reel-to-reel tape recorder. Okay. And uh, I would record them the best I could and you know capture the whole performance. And uh, at that point, I was living in a, a mobile home, just starting very modestly. Yeah. I had a 12 by 55 mobile home on the south side of Fort Wayne. And I would take those recordings that I had done in the VW bus, take them to the living room of my mobile home, and edit them and put compression and reverb on. And you know that, the technology back then is a lot different than what's available today. For sure. Yeah. Um, but I had it. I had enough that I could record it. And I did that for several years using that VW bus. Around what year was that? Was this like yep. 1980s? 1979 to okay. 1982. You're right on the money. Okay. And in 1982, I finally said, enough's enough. I need to find a real location. And so I bought my first real house on the west side of Fort Wayne. It's a very small house, but I was able to build a two-car garage onto the end of it. And I never parked a car in that garage. That became my recording studio. Yeah. And so uh, I was there for many years, several years. And uh, now, at that point, people would come see me versus me going to see them. Yeah, that's so, awesome. You know. uh, me personally, I'm a drummer and storing equipment and vehicles and stuff, especially on tour, I've been on tour a couple times, it's very crucial to make sure that yeah. the temperatures are right. Um, I was wondering, how, how was the equipment and stuff? Would you leave them in to the van? Or would you no. bring them in? In those days, I had to schlep it in and out of the van, and that was really okay. hard. Thank goodness I was young. But yeah. no, I would never leave it in the car because you're absolutely right. If it would freeze at night, that's not good. But even more importantly, you'd be worried about theft and yeah, for that sure. sort of thing. So I always carried it in and out. I'm thankful today that I still play, and, and I have a dedicated vehicle that I get to pull into a heated garage. So yeah. I never even unload it, and I keep the stuff in there until my next gig. So that's, that's amazing. It's a great position to be in. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I want to move up to a revolutionary step, I believe, that branched this career a little bit further, and that was the purchase of the Kurzweil. That's the 250, and that was pretty much a keyboard, like a modern keyboard that we have today that held sample libraries. Is that correct? Yeah. 1983, a friend of mine who owned a music store in town invited me to go to the NAM show. NAM stands yeah. for National Association of Music Merchants. At that time, they used to be in Chicago, and that was a big show. And so I said, sure, I'll go with you. I went up, and I saw a prototype of this Kurzweil K250. And it was a, a big room, probably 12 by 12, of computer memory boards and you know computers and that sort of stuff. And what they had promised that it would be a music instrument that would play back all the sounds of an orchestra. I thought, wow. whoa, how cool is that? And uh, 
you know, I said, when's it going to be real? And they said, well, the next year or two. And so I put my name down and it wasn't very long. And they called me and said, if you want one, you know, you can get one. And so I bought serial number 32, but it was the first music instrument that played back digital recordings of other instruments. So there was a nine foot grand piano, there was an upright bass, a, a choir, there was a string section and all these instruments that were actually digital recordings of other instruments. Up until then, all we had were synthesizers, organs, electric pianos, but this was the real thing. Wow. Now today, that's easy. We do that, you know, on our iPads and, and, and laptops and that sort of thing. But it was yeah. a big deal in 1984 and 1985. I, I bought serial number 32, and being a techie guy, and I was techie because I'd been on the road making equipment. I was technical because even by then I had several years of a recording studio, so I had to learn how to align tape recorders, fix the mixer when it broke. So I taught myself how to do computer repair, uh, technology, you know, uh, technology repair with electronics. Uh, I had written already some basic computer programs so I could uh, do my billings for the studio, even make labels for cassette tapes back then. And uh, once I got this Kurzweil K250, I started making my own sounds for it. Wow. And uh, it, it could uh, have a Macintosh hooked up to it. This is 1984 and 85. The Mac 128 had just come out. And it had the same processor that the Macintosh did. And you put a cable between the two, and you could load sounds in and out. And so being a studio guy, I made a lot of my own sounds. And then I started reverse engineering how it worked designed some other software. I figured out how to get those sounds not only on the three and a half inch discs we had back then, but actually get them onto EEPROMs that I could permanently put inside the machine. And uh, I started calling other Kurzweil owners and it was a brotherhood. You could call up people that had one and you go, you have a Kurzweil? I have one too. It was that unique. Yeah. Um, except the people that had them were folks who were far more successful than I was at the <sighs> time. It was Stevie Wonder and wow. Kenny Rogers and Bob James and Lyle Mays and Dolly Parton and all these really wow. famous musicians. And uh, they would say, well, I don't have any sounds yet, but I sure like yours. And so I would give Stevie Wonder my wow. sounds and Stevie would give me credits on his albums. And uh, eventually all these famous musicians would fly me around the country to teach them how to work their machine, how to upgrade their machine. And, uh, and I became an expert on this Kurzweil wow. K250 over the next couple of years. And That's impressive. Very impressive. It, it was a fun, fun part of my life. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I want to know kind of. Today we have YouTube. We can learn how yep. to do some stuff. Um, how did you learn how to like reverse engineer that from your own memory and stuff like that? Yeah, I told you I never uh, took any lessons. I didn't even go to college. That doesn't mean I'm uneducated. Yeah. I, I read very sure. quickly, and, and I have been a voracious reader my whole life. I, I absorb libraries. And so when it came to electronics, as an example, I'd go to the library, find a book, and taught myself how to do DC electronics and then AC electronics and computer programming. There weren't a lot of things back then, but it was starting to happen. So I learned how to do that. I learned how to do accounting by books, and so lots of books. And, and you know, everything you do gives you a foundation to build on. And so all that reverse engineering came from troubleshooting when a mixer channel didn't work or when a tape recorder channel didn't work. And it became pretty simple for me to, to do that. And I've just been blessed to have a skill to, that I can do things like that. Yeah. So by this time, you're doing the recordings and then you kind of switch into retailing. <clears throat> the Kurzweil kind of branched that side of things out to it. Is that when you discovered you want to get more into the retail side of things instead of the recording, even though you're still doing both? the Sweetwater kind of started to pick up at this time, right? It's kind of funny the way you ask the question because I can remember very clearly, 1986, 1987, I'm still trying to run my recording studio. And by then, I've upgraded it to pretty nice stuff, a 24-track recorder, a big console, all that sort of thing. And I'm almost annoyed 
that I'm copying discs for my friends that have Kurzweil K250s. It's like, come on, yeah. I'm busy doing music in my studio, but you want me to copy these discs? And and uh, I'll just never forget how, and I would do the session and have my other Mac on the side where I was just duplicating those discs for them. But uh, finally, you know, it really dawned on me that there was a lot of opportunity to help my friends with their equipment. And uh, folks like Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers wanted to buy second and third and fourth machines after they'd bought all the upgrades from me. And uh, it didn't take too long, and I became a dealer and, and yeah. started selling additional machines to my friends. And as crazy as that sounds, Kenny Rogers, till just a few years ago, carried 14 of these Kurzweil's on the road with him wow. because he was duplicating all the sounds of the last 40, 50 years of music that he's done. And he'd have six or eight of them on stage that his musicians would play, a couple of them in the bus and in the green room and on and on and on. We had a customer who died just a couple years ago, Michael Kamen, very famous uh, composer, had a home in Las Vegas and in Boston and in London. Mm-hmm. And he had over 40, 40 Kurzweil K250s. Wow. And every one of them came through our fingers. We put all of our upgrades on them and all that. That's but amazing. he loved them because they duplicated the sounds of an orchestra at his yeah. fingertips. And uh, so I'm helping my friends and helping them with their second or third Kurzweil and all the upgrades for their Kurzweil and all the options that I've made and all that. And one day I got a call from one of those friends and he said, I understand you can do sheet music on the computer. And I said, well, yeah, I know how to do that. I'm doing that in my own studio. And as I said, I'd already written software um, to do billing and to do cassette labels. And I was already into some of the sheet music printing software. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I know how to do that. And so I became a dealer for that software and helped my friend. And then wow. soon they started asking about recording equipment. And so I became a dealer for Tascam and Fostex recording equipment just to help my friends. And yeah. it just sort of went and went and went. And in 1990... I was still operating out of my home, now a second home, but operating out of my home, and I had five employees working for me, and I'd come downstairs, and I would have no idea who would be down there. It could be just the employees. It could be employees and, and customers or guests. Uh, it was many, many times buses would pull into our front yard and get the neighbors all excited because they see the Kenny Rogers bus or something. Yeah. Kenny was never on the bus. It was always <laughs> the road crew or the manager, but they were dropping an instrument off to be repaired or picking one up and that sort of thing. And in 1990, I said, enough's enough. I got five <laughs> people you know, my home all the time, and, and so I started looking for land to build our first commercial property in. Okay. And 1991, we moved into our first real commercial building, 5,000 square feet and those five employees. That's amazing. How was that funded? Was that funded from your previous work with the recording and retailing? Yeah, my whole life, every dollar I've made, I've put back into the company. Yeah. That's changed a little bit in the last few years, but I just was investing in myself, investing in the company. Uh, in the early days, you can't get a loan. It's, it's sad how that works, but as a... As a young entrepreneur, when you really need the money the most, it's the hardest to get the money out of the bank. When you're where we are today, I have banks begging to loan me money, and I go, I don't need your money, but thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, So I couldn't get loans in the early days, so I had to pay for it, uh, you know, by having credit cards maxed out. I did have a house mortgage, so I was able to get a a second mortgage on the house. And if you know, if you're really an entrepreneur, you got to be willing to be all in. For sure. You can't be partway in. You got to be all in because if you're not. Whether you are or not, but other people are. And if you want to be competitive, yeah. you got to be all in and absolutely go for it. For sure. Yeah. I was wondering, if you could go back to like this time, do mm-hmm. you think there's anything that you would change? Or are you pretty happy with like well, the decisions? I, yeah, of, you know, of course. Today, today we have 2,200 employees in all of our companies. We're zooming in on a billion dollars of sales it's every amazing. year. Amazing. It is amazing. And, and there's nothing magical about the billion. What I really like is the customers that we help with their dreams and their that. aspirations. And, and that's what I'm in, in the making people happy business. Um, you know, what I wish, 
And I'm not sure I could have done anything different. So it's really hard with hindsight even to look back at what yeah. would you have done different. Um, there were times in the early days when I tried to get help, whether it was bank loans or people to buy into what I was doing. Uh, they weren't very supportive. And I'm sure I got frustrated because they weren't supportive. And I look today and I go, how arrogant of that was me. Was me? You know, how arrogant <laughs> You know, was I at the time because they weren't walking in my shoes. They weren't yeah. following my dream. And for me to expect them to just jump in and go, yes, that's just, it was arrogant on my part. And I, I wish I would have been a little more understanding and patient and understanding that I had to do it on my own. I had to be all in. And after many, many years of being all in, then all of a sudden people start believing in what you're doing and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to say quite often, and it's a little bit real and a little bit of a joke, but I think the first 20 years of my 41 years now being in business, I think a lot of my friends and family would say, when are you getting a real job? When are you getting a real job? Yeah. I don't hear that anymore. They know yeah. it's a real job now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I heard from bankers and attorneys and professionals in the early years, and they'd go, a recording studio in Fort Wayne? That doesn't make any You need to be in Nashville. You need yeah. to be in L.A. And so that also caused them to not really buy into what I was doing. And I said, again, I probably got a little frustrated with it. Uh, which was unfair on my part. I should not have done that. So, I don't know. In hindsight, 2020, I wish I'd have had more patience to understand that others aren't living in my head, in my dream. I also wish, as hard as I did work, and I sacrificed a lot in the early days, and mm -hmm. uh, as much as I did that, I wish I could have been even more all in. I wish I'd have, you know, yeah. it's easy today because we're successful, but I wish I'd have gambled harder. But yeah. As much as I believed in myself and what we were doing, I wish I could have been even more all in because I think I could have done it faster. But, yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Um, so being in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the music industry, as you said, people, they kind of see it as Nashville or L.A. is like where you have to be. Did you get those pressures? And what did you tell the others when they tried to doubt you on your location? What did, how did you express that? You had faith in it because you grew up here. You know the loyalty of right. the Midwesterners. Were you pleased with, at that time, branching it in Fort Wayne, did you have a lot of confidence that it would actually take off? Sure. Great questions. Um, you have to start with just my own internal psyche. And I say things all the time like anything's possible. Yeah. Failure is not an option. And so I really believe that. I think there's just always a way. You know, you might have to work a little harder. You might have to turn a little left or a little right. Um, but I think anything is possible. Uh, you know, I can't tell you also 41 years ago, I would have seen the business would look like it is today. Yeah. But I knew whatever I did, I'm going to be successful. Whether it's five years old making you know thousands of potholders or at 25 years old and getting the Sweetwater business off the ground, I knew I was going to be successful because failure is just not in my vocabulary. There's yeah. always a way. Uh, I believe in the term continual improvement or Kaizen, which is a Japanese term for continual improvement. I'm always trying to get better. I don't believe you can stand still. And if you're not getting better and you can't stand still, you're going backwards. And I don't go yeah. backwards. So the Japanese term Kaizen of continual improvement. So I just looked at every day, can I do a little bit better, a little bit more than what I did yesterday? And the other thing I would say, you know, and, and I'm not, I don't mean this critical, I, you know, I help a lot of young people today and the landscape for entrepreneurs and the ability to raise money has changed quite a bit. And a lot of them want to get a company going real quick and then bring a bunch of capital in and on and on and on. I didn't do that. It wasn't even possible back then. Yeah. And, and I hate to see young people. I mean, if it helps them and gets them there, that's fine. But I hate to see them give up yeah. control or give up a percent, percentage of their business. Uh, I didn't. I just kept working at it hard. And I wasn't driven 
and I don't mean this as negative as it sounds, but I wasn't yeah. driven by the instant gratification that I'm going to get it to a certain level so then I can bring a bunch of capital in or sell it. or I just wasn't. I just want to do a great job. And as, as weird as this sounds, I wasn't gripped by the money part. Yeah. Um, yeah, as all my bills are getting paid, that's good enough for me. I just want to do a great job at what I do, and I want to take care of customers and friends as I believe they are. And as long as we keep moving forward, somehow the money will take care of itself. That's right. Yeah. Um, I like that point that you just made. When you walk into the Sweetwater facility, you make it very clear that you want to do business in the right way. You want the customers to be satisfied. And I think that's a big reason that Sweetwater is so successful today is you made the customers and the employees the heart and the foundation of this company. And that family orientation kind of just built itself. Is that absolutely? What you would say? No, you you hit it right on the money, and I'm glad you noticed it. Yeah. Um, I tell all of my new employees that everyone at our company is either adding credibility or not adding credit, and we want them to add credibility because we've worked so hard for our brand. Yeah. And whether you're a receptionist or in the shipping department, you can make our company better, our credibility, our brand better. You can also hurt our brand. And we've worked so hard to do a great job that I don't want to have any employee hurt our brand. Um, but, but absolutely, I'm interested in what I say to all new employees. I don't really care if I make money on this transaction. I don't care if I make money on the next transaction or even the third or fourth. It sounds a little weird, you know, <laughs> especially for someone being business. I'm not real gripped up about the money part. I'm gripped up about, did we do a great job for the customer? Do we give them a wow experience? You know, will they come back? That repeat business is incredible. Will they refer us to their friends? And I know if we do a really good job, I know it's the right thing to do. It allows me to lay my head on my pillow at night. I also happen to know as a side benefit, the money part and the business part will take care of itself. But I really yeah. don't do it for the business part or because it sounds good. I do it because I grew up as a Boy Scout to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Yeah. Those are the principles I live by, and I just happen to sell music equipment. Or I happen to have other businesses that sell cars or teach people how to fly airplanes That's and helicopters and all that stuff. But it's all about fulfilling that dream and doing the right thing for the customer. That's right. I want to go back to a little bit behind that again to when Sweetwater was actually founded. When did the Sweetwater name come in? When did this idea that you were, you wanted to really pursue it all in? Yeah. When, around what time? 1979 is when I started the company. Um, and I will tell you, I've been all in since I was five years old That's, making potholders. So yeah. there was never an all in, you know, per se at Sweetwater. When I was recording my bus, I did the best job I could. One of the things I always have done though, is try to provide value, extra value for the customer. And when we would do recordings in those early days, in the bus, I would make sure that the customer got extra LPs. We did a lot of pressing of vinyl back then, or extra uh, cassettes, or I would do another hour and I wouldn't charge them for that. I wanted to give them extra value. And we fast forward all the way to today, we give value in everything we do. Things like everything we sell has a two-year warranty, even though all of our competitors only have a one-year warranty. Yeah. I just think it's really important to believe in what I'm selling the customer. And if I thought it was going to break at 13 months or 15 months, I don't want to sell it. And so I have yeah. I have confidence, and I want to ensure that confidence that it's a two-year warranty. And frankly, if it's 25 months, 27 months, we, don't, we, we want to do the right thing for the customer. We're not going to get real gripped on that. We have technical support people. Uh, there's more than 50 folks here that absolutely free. You buy something from us, and frankly, even if you're not totally loyal to us, we'll help you get it going and give you free technical support that none of my competitors offer. I don't say that to pat ourselves on the back. I'm just saying we try and add value to everything we sell. And, and that's just been our philosophy from day one, to do the right thing for the customer. That's right. That's a very good point. I want to move into, you. I, I love the point that you said that you're 100% ownership of the company all the way through. Mm -hmm. You branched this company from the beginning. You might have had a couple employees help throughout the way. 
there did come a point where you did want to invest to someone else where you had someone come in and actually purchase part of the company around what time was that yep. in? How yep. much was that? Yeah, it was 1997. My okay. attorney and accountant came to me and said, Oh my gosh, this is a $12 million company. How big could it possibly get? Wow. They're thinking like most people would, I don't blame them, but you know, $12 million is still a huge company yeah. in a town like Fort Wayne or oh, South yeah. Bend or, you know, any country, any uh, city in the Midwest. And they said, you've got all of your money, everything you have invested in this thing. You ought to consider taking some money off the table. And I was kind of naive. I said, oh, okay. And uh, so we shopped the company to various venture capital firms. Uh, we went to some of our strategic competitors, went to Guitar Center. Mm -hmm. There was a store called Mars Music, which is now out of business. We went to them and everybody wanted to buy the company because by then I already had many years of being successful. And every year, I've got 41 years where the top line and the bottom line are better than the year before. So yeah, I have a great history. And so even then in 1997, we had a good history of making money every year. And all of those people stepped up and said, well, we want to buy the company or we want to invest in it. And I, I chose a good set of partners uh, up in Chicago, and they bought 80% of the company, and I contained 20% of the company. And over the next several years, I ran it like it all, I always had, and, and most people in Fort Wayne didn't even know I had sold a majority, but yeah. that did allow me to take a bunch of money off the table. Well, during that four years, that's when the internet really happened. And so the mm -hmm. internet became, it went from dot com to eventually dot bomb. And most things didn't, yeah. didn't do real well. Uh, but after four and a half years or so, my partners came to me, and that's pretty common in the capital firm's business. And they said, we need to divest and we want to sell the company again. And yeah. so they made me, for a second time now, go out and talk to Guitar Center and some <laughs> other capital firms and all that. And, and uh they had a really nice offer because during the four and a half years that they owned the majority of us, you know, we did a good job running it. And they said, we're going to take that offer. And I said, well, actually, I want to buy the company back myself. And they scoffed at me and they said, oh, you can't do that. You don't have enough money. And I said, yeah, I'll give you all the money that you gave me years ago. <laughs> I went to a local bank and found a way to finance the inventory that I would get once I bought the company back. And I was still several millions of dollars short. Yeah. But what my, my, uh, friends in Chicago miscalculated is that I had had a lifetime of relationships that I had developed in Fort Wayne. And so I went to 19 friends that were doctors, accountant, got an insurance company. And I said, I'm trying to buy the company back and I'm several million dollars short. Would you loan me money? And 18 of the 19 loaned me anywhere from $50,000 to one of them. Doctor loaned me a million dollars. And and I was able to borrow enough money to match the best offer that my partners had on the Sweetwater Company. So in 2001, bought the whole thing back. And, wow. Uh, so uh, 2001, we, my wife and I owned the whole company. But, of course, we had a lot of debt to the bank, and we had a lot of debt to 18 friends, right? Yeah. And uh, in about a, once we owned it back again, and, and nothing against the partners, but the company really took off. And yeah. so within a year and a half, I had paid off the bank. Wow. And I started going to my friends. And, by the way, the friends were all in second position. In other words, they didn't have any security on that money. And so I had to pay them a lot of interest. I was paying them 12% interest. I think interest at the time was about 8%. Wow. But because they were unsecured, I paid them 12%. I started going to my friends after about two years, and I said, hey, I'd like to pay Pay you back and they said no we like the extra interest and i said no you're my friend and yeah. i learned the term prepayment penalty yeah and over the next six months or so i paid off all of my friends what i agreed to borrow for what i'd borrowed from them and a little bit of interest and a, and a prepayment penalty and less than four years we had paid everything back and and since then that was back in 2005 or so now my wife and i have owned everything 100 since wow yeah i think taken out of that that shows the importance of networking and building that friendship, that community with a loyal Fort Wayne 
um, your friends you had there, they wouldn't have been able to do that if you didn't do the initial networking that it took to get to know them. And it sounds like you take the time to get to know that person, to build that relationship, which take a hand for a hand, which helps each other out along the way. Absolutely. And, and I, I heard conversation after conversation when I would ask them for the money. I'd say, you know, and by the way, you would be in second position. You have no security. And that's why I'm paying you 12%. And I, I bet I heard 12, 13, 14 times. It's okay, Chuck. We trust you. We've known you for a long time. And it was because of those relationships. And that's what my life's all about, whether it's my personal life, my professional life, my entrepreneurial. It's developing relationships with people. And, yeah. and people want to do business with people. For sure. Yeah. Moving into the sweet water that we have today, I think that your employee satisfaction is unbelievable the interaction between employees and customers. Is there initial, an initial thing that you tell your employees when they come in? They're called sales, sales engineers, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is there an initial thing that you teach them to get to the customers? Is there like a motto they live by or something yep, like that? Yep. First off, I work with every employee and they, they understand the importance of that scout law. I don't mm-hmm. expect them to memorize it, yeah. but I do tell them they can all go Google it. And uh, if, if they just think about those principles you know, what would Chuck do as an example? They're, they're going to be going down the right path. I also tell everybody, literally everybody, they're empowered to do whatever they need to do to do the right thing for the customer. Yeah. I'm not gripped about this sale or the next sale. I'm gripped about doing the right thing. And so I tell them, if you need to pay for an Uber ride for somebody or buy their lunch or replace the guitar or replace the keyboard, you will never get in trouble for that. I do not want to hear an employee say, well, I need to get management approval or go to the manager like a lot of companies do. The folks that we've hired are really good people. We, we've interviewed them hard. We've checked their references. And by the time they're here, I trust them. Yeah. And, and I want them to represent my business as if it was their business. And they will never, ever, ever, and I promise them that, they'll never get in trouble for doing too much for a customer. They will get in trouble for doing too little, you know, if they don't return phone calls, if they pass the buck, if they blame someone. Just take the high road and do the right thing. And if they ever think they're getting in trouble with a manager, I tell them they're always allowed to use the Chuck card. Yeah. Chuck said, because I've told every employee that's ever worked for me that, you do the right thing for the customer. You know, the other kind of stuff that I talk about is, is what I mentioned earlier, the the everyone has the ability to add value or take value away from the company. And Absolutely. we're only as good as our weakest link. You know, we can work yeah. really hard with our sales engineers, have a great relationship with the customer, and we drop the ball in shipping or we drop the ball at the front desk or a receptionist. Man, it's it's really risking or challenging our yeah. relationship with that customer. And so I just tell everybody, run it like it's your own company. I'm going to back you on it. You'll never get in trouble based on that sort of stuff. And, and treat people the way you would want to be treated. That's Absolutely. Yeah. I've been personally a Sweetwater customer for many years now. And I love the point that you assign your employees to customers and each each customer gets about two calls a year just following up on yep. their purchases, their satisfaction. I, I found it funny because I did some research and I found that the employees even know sometimes the spouse's names or, or such, such stuff like that. And I, I was boggled like, how was the system created to memorize all this? Is, it, is there like a software that you have your employees go by where it says like every customer's name or how, how does that come about? Do you assign them to write? Well, you've done some good research, Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, I've always believed in having a relationship with our customers and that is the fundamental thing that we operate on way, way back in my early days with the Kurzweil stuff. Um, you know, I was writing down my customer's name and phone number and address sort of stuff, obviously. But, you know, if they mentioned their spouse's name, I would jot that down. If they talked about their dreams or aspirations or what they're working on, I'd write that down or children's names. 
And in the early days, we didn't have databases per se. We actually did it on spreadsheets and all that. But through the years, I developed a customer relationship management software. Wow. And uh, I don't program it anymore, but it got very sophisticated. Even under my watch, and today it's at a whole (laughs) new level. And we do track everything about the customer, not in a big brother sort of way. We would never sell the customer's information. We'd never do anything wrong with it. But it does help us to do a better job, you know. So... Uh, if I know, you know, your birth date, then yeah, you might get a call saying yeah. happy birthday, that sort of thing. We do, as you said, reach out to every customer at least twice a year, depending on their buying patterns and their interests. We have some customers we call every day because they want to talk about their gear and that wow. sort of thing. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, every couple of weeks, a couple, every couple of months. It just sort of depends on how much they're into it and that sort of thing. They love talking to us. It's not like we're selling, you know, cemetery plots or windows or something. It's, yeah. you know, their vocation or avocation. And if for any reason they don't want us to call, if you just tell us and we won't call anymore. But they generally like hearing about the new gear. And as new products come out, you know, we, we've kept a list of what they probably have and what they're thinking about. And it's easy to call them and say, we just got in this brand new blah, blah, blah that I think will be great in your studio or out live. And, and the customers really appreciate having a personal consultant. And yeah. back to your initial point is, yes, every... Uh, customer is is generally assigned to a sales engineer. It's not written in stone. It's not saying it's forever, but that really means that that salesperson or our sales engineers, as we call them, get a chance to develop a relationship with you. And that's completely different than all of our competitors who you just get the next available attendant. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. My One of my last points I want to make is sure. the traditional way of advertisement that you guys ship out these catalogs. You guys still use traditional ways. You guys still use modern ways. As a customer, I'm able to kind of identify this because I get the newsletters through email. I get the Sweetwater catalogs. I'm always excited as those show up at my door. I love that you guys mix those fundamentals between advertisements. And I think the combination between those two really broadens your audience and your customers. If you guys would have stopped one of those, I think that could eliminate a lot of your audience. And sticking to that broad aspect of advertisement, I think it really draws in your loyal customers and staying loyal to the way that you guys did ship out those catalogs, I think really brought in the way that the customers stay. We do a lot of different advertising, as you said, and there's an old joke in advertising that says 50% of it's effective, and if I only knew which half to cut out, I would. And yeah. there's a little bit of that here, although we have a lot of science. We uh, we know, as an example, when we send out a catalog, we watch our phones light up and, yeah. and ring off the hook. We also know a lot of customers don't want the catalog, and what they don't, under, you know, sometimes it's because they don't want to throw it away. Sometimes they're worried about the green aspect in the tree. Mm-hmm. Well, we thought that through, and we're using paper that's actually uh, special paper that's environmentally friendly. We actually have trees that are planted to replace the trees that we use. That's one of the resources that's available in our world that you can regenerate. You can plant more trees and and, uh, it creates a whole industry for people and on and on and on. Um, There's something about having that hard copy in front of you, whether it's, you know, sitting on the couch or, you know, uh, the bedroom or or who knows where uh, that a catalog can do that even an iPad or a laptop, you can't dog ear the pages in a a laptop or on your iPad. Um, But every word in that thing, we write all the technical specifications. We take all the pictures, but we also turn around and balance that with we're buying Google keywords, AdWords, and uh, we spend more in that electronic media space and social space than you can imagine, and we create lots and lots of content. I don't know how many people I have today in our marketing department that are doing videos, whether it's on drums or keyboards or guitars or pedals and on and on and on. And uh, Today, the world is you have to get the customer's 
whatever way the customers want to be gotten. And, yeah. and so sometimes it's print, sometimes it's electronic, it's emails, it's newsletters, it's all those sorts of things. And we're really scientific to try and balance how we send that. And most importantly, we follow the customer's wishes. If they say they want no more printed material, that's fine. We'll check a couple boxes and they'll get no more printed material and they'll get electronic. If they go, we don't want electronic, we'll stop sending them that too. I want to yeah. do whatever the customer wants. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Wrapping up here, I want to say it was an honor to interview and thank you for very much for taking the time to do this. And what I grasp out of this and what the listeners might grasp out of this is Sweetwater is really family-oriented, relationship-oriented, and I think that's what really just brought in this company. And I'm really inspired by the fact that you really live by that Boy Scout motto, and I've seen that through all the way through the beginning of your company all the way to the end. And that is a big reason of success for this company, I believe. Well, thank you, Cameron. And yeah. you you did hit it right on the head. We are family-oriented. My wife and I are still here every day. We're happen to be a little bit bigger family business today, but it's just doing the right thing, taking care of our employees. I didn't mention this before, but if we don't take care of our employees, That's how right. in the world would we expect our employees yeah. to take care of our customers? Right? Yeah, like the slide. You guys have many different things for your employees to have around the facility itself. Absolutely. They spend a lot of time here, and I just want to make sure that they're appreciated and they know they're appreciated and take good care of them so they take good care of our mutual customers. That's right. You know, I want to thank you for, for the interview today. It was a lot of fun. Uh, encourage you in your paths and what you're doing, and I'm, I hope the listeners are getting something out of what we're saying today. And I would also encourage anybody who wants to reach out to me. I respond to every email. It's Chuck at Sweetwater.com. Pretty simple. Chuck at Sweetwater.com, and you'll get a response from me. All right. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for listening. This podcast was sponsored by Quartet, top-rated business whiteboards. From meeting rooms and schools to home offices and hospitals, Quartet strives to make the dry erase experience as smooth as possible.